Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. It's a beautiful theater. Thank you. And um, it's a beautiful-looking film. One of the surprising things, enjoyable things about watching it tonight on the big screen was that even though it's a film that has a lot of talking heads, it's, uh, it, it's a beautiful big-screen film. It's Cinemascope. Could you talk a bit about, about how you shot the film, how you, why you decided to use um, that format? Well, I always have liked scope. And it looks big <laughs> and expensive. <laughs> Sorry? Thank you. Uh, You're she... welcome. <laughs> it also facilitates a certain kind of montage. Uh, I can shift the images around on this big piece of real estate. Is this a technique that you invented? I mean, people know about the Interatron, the camera, where you get the subject to look right into the camera, but you, you're sort of jumping around within the frame. Does that help you in editing? Or? Well, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> when you're editing an interview, there's always the problem of jump cuts. Uh, you need to cut out a section... Uh, and the camera's in the same position, you see a jump cut uh, with any kind of edit. I thought it was interesting, at least one review that I read today suggested that I used two cameras for these interviews. Well, Hmm. that's just not true. (laughs) There's only one camera, uh, uh, but I can shift the image around. I can cut and paste, essentially. So uh, you'll see Joyce McKinney on the left side of the screen. I can cut and shift the image to the right side of the screen and paste a piece of the background in. Hmm. Call it what you will. You might even think of it as cheating. (laughs) But it allows a different kind of editing. I like to think of myself as on the forefront of interview technology. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, this is something new. I used it in standard operating procedure, and I've used it here in tabloid. Could you talk a bit about the title? It's it's, uh, such a simple title, tabloid, but I just wonder if you could talk about your choice to sort of focus on on the the sort of form of storytelling in a way rather than making a comment about the love story, for example. Tabloids are so in the news these days. There are tabloids falling, you know, scandals going on. Well, certainly I wasn't uh, aware that there was going to be an (laughs) ongoing tabloid scandal uh, when the movie was released. This has come as a surprise. And I fielded all kinds of questions in the last week about the connection between this movie and News of the World, the closing of News of the World. Um, 
I like tabloids. Um, where would I be without tabloid stories? <laughs> um, I don't see anything wrong with tabloid stories per se. Uh, many of my movies uh, come from what would be considered to be, if not in a tabloid, a tabloid-like story. Um, and of course you can find them anywhere. You can find them in the Boston Globe, you can find them in the New York Times, and you can find them in actual tabloids themselves. The News of the World scandal doesn't seem to be a tabloid scandal per se, even though it involves, of course, a tabloid. Um, it seems to be a return to yellow journalism, um, to a kind of mean-spirited journalism that has no relationship to what at least I consider journalism to be. Uh, no concern with the truth. Uh, and a kind of free-for-all idea. Call it um, uh, an ethical anarchy <laughs> where anything goes, where all is permitted. There are elements of that, of course, in the story of the British tabloids in the 1970s, but this seems to be um, a new extreme. <laughs> One of the great things about the tabloid newspapers is headlines and the way that words, um, these vivid words, um, are, catch our attention. And this film seems to be very much about sort of a fight for for control of words. I, I love the, the, the moment when Joyce says, say that I left and not fled. And it's filled, it's filled with that sort of thing, the sort of, the sort of um, attempt to control one's own story. I mean, it seems to be really one of the things that the movie's about. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, clearly, people are fighting uh, over the story, competing tabloids with their own version of the story, their own version of who is Joyce McKinney, virgin whore, etc. <laughs> um, my favorite line, Joyce has a lot of very good lines, don't get me wrong, but my favorite, <laughs> my favorite line in tabloid is Peter Torrey's line, um, I think it was ropes, but chains sounds better. Um, uh, it's interesting for so many, many reasons. Um, in a very simple way, uh, he's describing a, a central problem of journalism, if you like. Uh, on one hand, you have the pull of storytelling the need to get people to buy your newspaper, uh, read your story. And on the other hand, you have the underlying facts, what really happened. Um, of course, the question uh, remains, what happens when the need to sell newspapers supersedes the need to tell any kind of factual story uh, where 
interest in trying to uncover the truth doesn't simply take a back seat. It's just discarded altogether. Hell with it. Um, and that's certainly an interesting part of the story. But I like your description, this battle over words. Um, and descriptions which, um, particularly when I am deeply unsure of what has happened, um, the words have a way of forcing your attention. Now, one of Peter Torrey's favorite uh, phrases, correct me if I'm wrong, is spread eagle. <laughs> um, Fanky likes it so much that he uses it again and again and again and again. Um, and I uh, tried to cut into the movie as uh, many uses of spread eagle as I possibly <laughs> could within a limited amount of time. Yeah, I think see through was another favorite. See through was another favorite. Of course. I don't know whether he was spread-eagled or whether somehow that's Peter Torrey's fantasy of what transpired in the love cottage. Um, in the Thin Blue Line, I have these reenactments, probably badly named reenactments, which are designed to focus your attention. Uh, there's a milkshake that is tossed. Uh, that becomes one of the central images of the movie. It's not a reenactment per se, but a device to make you think about what really happened, about what transpired, about what went down. And Spread Eagled is very much like that. Um, uh, mere words, fantasies, uh, wishful thinking on his part of some sort. Yeah. Or something that actually happened. Well, you, what you make aware of, I mean, you've got Joyce at the center and you have all these men around her. And in a way, each of them has a different projection on her. And, and you All are, these men around her, I might add, including myself. Well, I was going to say that, <laughs> but because you make us very aware of you as a filmmaker. She calls you Mr. Filmmaker, but you're, th you're doing things like throwing in um, film clips. You're, you're sort of making us think about how you're using the medium to get at the story. I've done about 30, 40, 50, I've lost track, interviews in the last couple of days. <laughs> um, someone asked me about documentaries which reflect on the whole process of telling a story. Um, the film that they mentioned was Exit Through the Gift Shop. Um, and the answer is, there is a new kind of documentary. I think that is true. And I would include tabloid among them, where you're telling a story, and at the same time you're commenting on that story, and you're telling a story about how stories are told, um, about how stories are created uh, in the press. Uh, it's one of the aspects of this particular movie that I really, really like. 
It has a whole number of themes that have appeared in one form or another in other movies that I've made. But I like the fact that they find clear expression in this particular movie, in Tabloid. And you found this um, um, amazing footage, which I think might, might even confuse people, the, the footage of Joyce reading, reading her story from, from, um, you know, that frames the film. And it's, it's just incredible. And it makes you realize that she really has lived this story. She's sort of turned her life into this, into this fable. Can yeah. you talk about that, that footage? The footage is remarkable. Uh, uh, people say crazy things about my movies. <laughs> um, uh, I remember <laughs> in the Thin Blue Line with the reenactments, there was a reporter in Dallas who asked me how I happened to be out on the roadway that night when the police officer was <laughs> shot and killed. <laughs> and no, it wasn't a joke. Um, yeah. There are all these angles. There are angles underneath the car. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Someone saw tabloid and wondered whether I had created, it's a reasonable question, I suppose, uh, whether I had created the bookends for the movie, that I had shot them in such a way with a Joyce McKinney lookalike. <laughs> and, uh, well, <laughs> in fact, I you did had done not yeah. do any such thing. Right. They're not reenactments, although I don't even really know what a reenactment is anyway, but they're not reenactments, whatever they are. Uh, there was a Utah filmmaker, Trent Harris, one more man who became obsessed with Joyce McKinney and started a film in the early 80s, never finished it, uh, and uh, very kindly, he allowed me to use this material which to me, I don't know, it's a toss-up, what I consider to be the most bizarre found footage mm. uh, uh, is it that uh, footage shot by Joyce McKinney herself where she's panning her backyard and narrating repeatedly, nothing is happening. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff. <laughs> or is it the bookends uh, where she's reading f from her fairy tale, uh, the story of her life? Uh, I still don't really know what to make of it. I really don't. Um, there's something mysterious, tragic, disturbing. There's a number of adjectives that come to mind. Um, I have a book uh, titled Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. It's in my library. And my joke was I would show people the book and say, uh, I always knew I was going to have a book in my library with that title someday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 
the beginning of this movie, Joyce is telling the story of her life before it's transpired. Right. Uh, she's in her early 30s narrating the next 30 years of her life. What is that about? Do we create scripts for ourselves and then enact them, or if you prefer, reenact them? <laughs> Is life some kind of bizarre reenactment? Um, what is going on? Um, and I honestly have to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But this is like part of, of course, what's so interesting about the film because we, we don't really. I was just going to ask you about how you um, use laughter in a way. That's sort of one, one subject. In the beginning of the film, there's just a number of moments where we clearly laugh at, at Joyce. You know, she says, um, "I'm in mean the line," which she says, I, "I didn't really see the world until I went to Utah." That got a big laugh here. Um, but um, but then but but she. Um, she, she is, in a way, she is a true romantic. I mean, in a way, you, you, you know, even though she's, she's deluded at, at times, I mean, you feel so many different things about her, but there is a way that she is sort of true to this romantic idea. She's one of the great romantics. How could you argue otherwise? Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, many romances are about hopeless love. And this is one of the great classic hopeless love romances. I don't know how else to describe it. It does raise one interesting question. Does love involve two people, or in some instances, say, three, <laughs> or just one? It seems... Not to give too quick an answer, but in this film, it seems like the answer is, it seems like it's one. It seems like she has her idea. All the men in the film have their, you know, their own projections. And most one. <laughs> yeah. I make movies because they're unresolved mysteries, and there's so many unresolved mysteries for me in this story. Uh, I can't really say I understand Joyce. I like Joyce, and I'm delighted to have made this movie about Joyce, but I would not claim to understand her. Now she asked this interesting question at the end. What's the, what is the connection between um, dog, you know, woman who gets her dogs cloned and this ta you know, woman from the tabloid story? You, was it that dog, dog cloning story, from what I understand, is what drew you to this film. Is that true? Not exactly. I read a, yeah. an article in uh, the Boston Globe, an AP wire service story, that started off with the dog cloning. Um, a woman named Bernan McKinney had cloned her pit bull. See, I'm telling you things now you already know. <laughs> had cloned her, her pit bull booger. Um, and produced these five uh, booger clones, the, the mini boogers, <laughs> uh, 
Um, and at the bottom of the story mentioned that she might be Joyce McKinney, who was involved in a sex and chains story uh, from 30 years ago. So it was A and B, the combination of those two story elements that led me to make the movie. Uh, and yes, it's a curious combination. <laughs> uh, I myself have asked that very same question. <laughs> what does a 32-year-old sex and chain story have to do with dog cloning? Um, I got an answer from an audience. I had screened the film uh, before we actually had locked the picture and mixed the soundtrack. I'd screened the film for a number of different audiences. And I was concerned. I felt that somehow if the movie was going to work as a movie an audience had to feel that there was a connection between those two stories, other than the mere fact that Joyce McKinney was part of both of them. Bernan McKinney really was Joyce McKinney. Um, and a woman in the audience, um, I asked the question, a woman in the audience said, you know, it's obvious. She finally got pregnant. <laughs> and of course, it's true. Um, and Joyce has that great line in the movie, we're pregnant. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, the um, interview with Joyce is at the heart of this film. Uh, is it true that that was filmed in one day, one session? I'm just thinking, as a man, oh. Can I get pregnant, too, if I get something cloned? <laughs> Maybe myself. <laughs> Sorry. Why not? Yeah. Sorry for yeah. interrupting. <laughs> uh, the interview, was, was it true that the interview with Joyce was done in one session? Yeah, one day. Um, she came into the studio, we filmed, and... I didn't meet her again for over a year. Uh, I met her again at the Skirball Center in Manhattan, um, and she just appeared by surprise with one of the Booger clones. I believe it was Booger Lee, although it <laughs> might have been Booger Hong. Um, they're clones, so they look very similar. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, and then I saw her again last weekend, Saturday night. There was a screening of this movie in L.A., and she showed up in disguise uh, with a black wig, and she was told that there would be a Q&A, and I wanted her to be part of the Q&A after the screening of the movie. So the wig came off. She changed um, dresses to an amazing sequined rhinestone deal. Um, and again, 
please forgive me. I'm not sure whether it's Booger Lee or Booger Hong. Uh, the dog also had a wardrobe change, <laughs> appearing in a sequin jumpsuit to match what Joyce was wearing. And we were on stage together for well over an hour. I would have to describe it as one of the truly surreal experiences <laughs> of my life. Now, and it's, <laughs> it's not the first time she's a, appeared sort of by surprise. I mean, there, there is video. Well, she uh, went from festival to festival. Right. I wasn't at <laughs> most of them. She was in San Francisco. <laughs> she was in Seattle. She was in Austin. She was in Sarasota. She was in New York. Um, she was everywhere. <laughs> and so what was your feeling about this? I mean, she was sort of getting up and, and being vocal about the film. And, and uh, I mean, some of this you can see on, on YouTube, some of these appearances. But. Um, well, it's one of my favorite quotes that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, Joyce was quoted as saying that... Uh, my movie, Tabloid, was a celluloid catastrophe. <laughs> um, uh, excellent alliteration. Um, she has been very angry, um, threatening litigation, um, expressing extreme displeasure, by the fact that I included other people in the movie. Hmm. She had imagined that it would be uh, all Joyce McKinney, not just mostly Joyce McKinney, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that I didn't create a screed against the Mormon church, uh, that there was other stuff in there as well. Hmm. Um, but the oddity of it is she is not an unwilling celebrity. Uh, I think that there are many, many victims of the tabloids, but I can't really see Joyce uh, completely as a victim, uh, as an unwilling participant. When you invited her to be in the film, did she, was it a sort of immediate yes, or did she, you know, what was that process getting her to agree to do the interview? Um, I contacted her when I first read the AP Wire Service story, and she didn't want to be interviewed. And months went by, I would say part of a year, uh, and I had been offered a deal to do a series by Showtime. In fact, the title of the series was going to be, guess what, Tabloid. And this would be the pilot episode. Um, well, I shot this interview with Joyce, and it was pretty much clear to me that this was not a half hour of television, that this was something more. Uh, and pretty soon it uh, changed from a, a pilot of a series to a movie in its own right. I don't like to talk to people 
well in advance of shooting them. If someone sits down and tells you their story without a camera present, you're essentially asking them to repeat a story to you uh, that has already been told. Bad idea. I've learned that the hard way over the years. Just simply don't do that. Just say no, if possible. Uh, sometimes I don't really meet people until I put them in front of my interviewing machine, until I put them in front of the Interatron. Uh, <laughs> And that was more or less true with Joy. She came to a studio in Van Nuys, California, and we just shot for a good part of a day, and then I didn't see her for a long, long, long time after that. Well, we have time for some questions from the audience. Uh, so if Joyce is here, she can, she can pipe in now. But otherwise, um, if anybody else has questions, just raise your hand, and I'll repeat them. So I think the hour or hour and a half in L.A., Was she sated, or is she waiting until the next screening in L.A.? Probably the latter, because I'm going to be back in L.A. at the end of the week. There are more screenings of tabloid. I expect Joyce to be there. <laughs> um, she did send, it's an amazing document, a uh, close to 20,000-word email to Roger Ebert. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask her, I'm sorry, now I'm just babbling on, but I'll stop in a moment. Um, Joyce, uh, this last Saturday, said, well, everybody's laughing. Um, this is not a funny story. This is a deeply tragic story. My life was destroyed by the tabloids. My life was destroyed by the Mormon church. Fair enough, um, but I told Joyce, uh, you're one of the funniest people I have ever met. You are very, very, very funny. Um, and then I asked her a question. I said, can you honestly tell me that when you use the expression, uh, uh, a woman can't rape a man. It would be like putting a marshmallow <laughs> in a parking meter. I thought that was going to be your title for the film. But. <laughs> <laughs> can, you can you honestly tell me you didn't think that was funny? <laughs> and so she starts laughing and she says, well, I'm just you know, a southern girl, and we have these expressions. But, um, I don't know about you. I'd never heard it before. <laughs> well, she's the one with the 168 IQ. I think you've said that your IQ was, like, in the 80s. So. <laughs> well, I'm very proud to report that um, I did, in junior high school, get an 87 on an IQ test. And the guidance counselor came up to me and said, you know, Earl, you s seem to be a lot brighter than you really are. <laughs> so I think I'm just making a kind of extra effort. 
<laughs> by the way, it's one of my very, very favorite tabloid articles. I used to subscribe to the Weekly World News. In fact, my son learned to read. We would sit and read the <laughs> Weekly World News together. Bat Boy escapes from cave. <laughs> Bill Clinton might be a space alien. But my favorite article uh, was um, how to look smart when you're really stupid. <laughs> and it has all of these ext extremely helpful tips. Um, I, uh, I tried to read it carefully. Uh, um, <laughs> carry around with you a book. Uh, the book is going to make you look smart. You should read a little bit of it. You don't have to read the whole thing. <laughs> so that if someone asks you a question about, hey, <laughs> you know, is that Moby Dick or whatever, <laughs> uh, drink a lot of coffee and occasionally use a big vocabulary word. But they caution. This is very, very, very important. You should know what it means. <laughs> You're totally describing our audience, so, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, so there's a question right here. Go ahead. And I'll repeat so everybody can hear. Okay, was it your intention to uh, present choice as an object of ridicule? Absolutely not. I, I really like Joyce. I think she's an amazing, romantic figure. Um, I don't see her as somehow a different kind of person from myself. If anything, I look at her as a kindred spirit. Um, and for me to make movies, uh, movies that involve real people, I have to like them on some level, or it just becomes impossible. I'm not involved in adversarial journalism. I'm not trying to trap people in lies or contradictions. Um, I'm trying to reveal something about them. Uh, and I see this, of course, I can be as delusional as the next guy, but I see this as a very loving portrait, a sympathetic portrait of Joyce. I had these comments uh, on my first film. I had made Gates of Heaven uh, and people were really laughing uh, at these screenings and the question became am I just holding these people up to ridicule? Is that the name of my game? Is that why I'm making movies? Again, I, I would say no. Um, because something is absurd, ridiculous, funny, it doesn't mean it isn't a lot of other things. I think this is self-serving of me to say so, but I think this is a profound story. And that Joyce McKinney is a rich, complicated character that I would never claim to understand. Uh, and I also would argue, 
apropos of uh, what happened in our last encounter um, in Los Angeles, she knows she's funny. And she's a willing participant in that humor uh, as well as everything else. Okay, what was the purpose of sh showing the word minibar when she couldn't remember the word? I'm helping out a little bit. <laughs> okay, so tell me, what is your problem? I'm not sure I agree. Let me ask this audience, since I have you as captives here. <laughs> Uh, at least for a short while. Did you like her? Thank you. <laughs> It also seems clear that she is, is even as you said, that she's using the film as a platform to tell her story, that she has like, created a narrative, and she's, she's very aware that, that she's performing, you know, that it's a performance that she's giving. I mean, there's no pretense about that, so it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a, um, a victim who has no agency. It seems like she, I mean, she's controlling her story. She also says, well, she, thank God for all those years in drama school. And she's also, uh, there's a lot of references to movies, too. She's saying this is like a movie, that's like a movie. She even gives the Zaffirelli, you know, specific reference. So there's a way that she, there's a real um, awareness there, you know, even though it, right. Yeah, except that she did, I mean, she turned, well, you no, go ahead. No, no, no. She turned I'm her life into... I'm finding this very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, she did actually turn... She did turn her life into that movie. I mean, it's... 
Her life did become this self-fulfilling. Oh, sorry. Her life became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, she reenacted that fairy tale that she tells at the very beginning. Um, this is complicated, yeah. Yeah. and I wouldn't pretend otherwise. Um, there is something inherently, don't get me wrong, ridiculous about this story. That's not my fault. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Joyce has a keen sense of the absurd. She created this story. And in her own way, even though she's been destroyed in part by it, loves it. Uh, what you're saying, I don't disagree. Um, I've often been bothered by this distinction. Uh, people say, are you laughing with or laughing at? Whatever that means. Um, I'm not sure it means anything. Uh, it might be all laughing at. I wouldn't disagree. But that's not all it is. I think that something stranger is going on. Um, She is a participant in all of this. And yes, uh, she is in part a victim of this. Uh, but when she came in and told me her story, um, uh, my wife is very fond of quoting this line from George Orwell, uh, when Orwell said that he didn't believe in orphans over 30. <laughs> Um, Joyce agreed to this interview um, and told this story. Uh, you could argue that I should simply have not listened and just moved on to something else. Um, but I don't agree. I think it's a truly interesting, fascinating, compelling story. And I like to think in some way I fulfilled a dream of hers, maybe not without complication, uh, the dream of turning her life into art. Um, what did you make of her love for Kurt? I mean, did you, or did you, or does that still remain a mystery to you? I mean, she falls in love with him, you know, this, this sort of, uh, movie or fairy tale type thing of you know seeing each, seeing him um, in, in the car and she falls in love and she decides after it's over with him that she'll remain celibate that you know he'll be the only love of her life. I mean, how do, I don't know. How do you explain this? I wouldn't even hope to explain right. this. Of course, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, when you see her in those police photographs for stalking. Um, Joyce, to me, is w one determined lady, <laughs> someone who doesn't give up easily, um, uh, doesn't give up with Kirk, doesn't give up with Booger, doesn't really give up with anything. Uh, there is uh, this... Uh, 
um, heroic determination. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, a line that's always fascinated me from uh, a William Wyler film, uh, Dodsworth, taken from a Sinclair Lewis novel. Um, Walter Houston, uh, at one point in the movie, says, love has to stop somewhere short of insanity. Well, here's a counterexample. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think it does. And often, uh, often, um, I'm sure that every one of us in this audience has had some experience of obsessive love. Um, maybe it hasn't been carried quite to this extreme, I can't really believe it's a foreign experience to any one of us. Um, why Joyce t turned her life into a fairy tale? Do we all do it? That's one question I ask myself. Um, is Joyce's story a story about all of us? We all have these crazy scripts that we've written for ourselves, and then we proceed to reenact them. Um, I don't know. It raises all kinds of questions. Um, but one thing I'm really certain about, and I'll argue with anyone in the audience about it, this is not a movie that was made to hold Joyce up to ridicule. Uh, this was a movie designed to tell Joyce's story uh, in a rich, full, uh, and complex fashion. And I think it's one of the very best things I've done. Okay. Um, that seemed like a good note to end on, so I want to... Um, I think it was great. I, I want to also mention that you have a, a book coming out, not to do uh, too many plugs here, but... Uh, we're we're going to have a late-night infomercial here. Okay, <laughs> right, right, right. No, there's a, a book about your um, essays, a compilation of your, your wonderful essays on photography um, that's coming out soon. So I just want to mention that. And yes, I think, thank um, you. <laughs> September 1st, Penguin. <laughs> Believing is seeing. So carry it around and you can look smart, right? <laughs> uh, but thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.